right. Well, I'm impressed that you guys are all here today and uh, pretty excited to be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. And so hopefully, if you have your Bibles, you can open right there to Matthew chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand in the air, and I'm sure someone will bring one to you so you can follow along with us. Uh, But as we're working through uh, these messages on a week-by-week basis, we're in Matthew 11 this week, but we're doing a chapter a week, working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, One of the things we're looking at clearly in Matthew is just this idea that Jesus is the fulfillment of so many Old Testament prophecies. We'll see more of that this week. Uh, But we also want to look at it personally. We want to be asking ourselves, you know, is there one thing God is showing us to do in this passage? Is there one thing that God has for us in the passage? So make sure you're looking at it from a personal respect too. Don't just gain knowledge. Knowledge is good, but knowledge by itself isn't quite enough. We want to go beyond that and see if there's something personally that God can give us uh, and then find ways to put it into practice. I'm very good at finding things that God wants me to do. And then I kind of forget about it before the next Sunday comes around. I think, what was that one about? And so we kind of have to plan to do some of those things. And then a little bit of accountability for yourself, but also a chance just to have gospel conversations with other people. Uh, Plan to have a conversation with somebody. Just share the things that God's saying to you in the Word, and you'll be surprised uh, how many people needed to hear that thing, number one. Uh, You'll be surprised how many people uh, needed to just have a conversation along those topics. So... Uh, Anyway, uh, as we get to Matthew 11, it really is kind of an interesting passage. Um, What we're starting to see is a little bit as a transition in the teaching of Jesus, where uh, at the beginning he was like a superstar. He was really popular. He's healing diseases. He would preach, and they're like, man, we've never heard anybody speak like this before. But now what we're going to start to see in Matthew chapter 11 is a little bit more of a transition to recognize, yes, there were those who thought he was a superstar. Yes, there were those who were impressed with his miracles, but there were also those who were not. There are going to be those who, like we see here, seem to have great faith, but then have a moment of their faith failing. Uh, Then you're going to see those who seem to just be like uh, fickle people that doesn't matter what you do, it's not going to please them. And then other people we'll see uh, are going to respond to the teaching of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and just completely outright reject them, uh, even though they're very powerful. And so Jesus is going to kind of be a, a relation to us in this. Uh, So when we look at this first section here, we're going to be seeing uh, from our old friend John the Baptist. Uh, Remember, John the Baptist was the guy who, when Jesus first arrived on the scene, he's the one that baptized Jesus. He's the one that said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, you know, there's no question in this that John the Baptist, of course, was a believer in Jesus. But listen to what's kind of changed in his heart, potentially, uh, as you hear this. In verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So we have this kind of uh, interesting transition in chapter um, 10. Jesus was sending out the 12 apostles. Now what you would think would follow that is Jesus then telling us what happened, but no, Matthew continues to focus his attention on Jesus. He doesn't get into detail here about what the 12 were doing, even though Matthew was one of those 12, so he could easily convey, these are the things I did while I was on my trip. 
No, the, the purpose of this book is to get our focus on Jesus. But Jesus uh, sends them out, and while they leave, he's going to continue to do the work he was doing. He's continuing to preach the gospel. He's going to the various cities of the Jews here, trying to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Uh, but on, on, on the way along this path, uh, John the Baptist sends some disciples to Jesus to ask him this question, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Now, John couldn't ask the question himself because he's in prison. Uh, we found that out early in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4 that John had been imprisoned. We find out in chapter 14 the reason he was imprisoned is because he was calling out Herod for his immoral uh, lifestyle. Herod had uh, decided to marry his brother's wife, and so he lured his brother's wife away. Uh, so kind of a, you know, not a great example to follow, but you'll see that in Matthew chapter 14. Uh, it says that's why John was uh, imprisoned by Herod. Uh, but anyway, kind of, a, kind of an uh, unfortunate situation. John's in jail. Um, I don't think John did the wrong thing by calling out the immoral lifestyle of, of, of Herod in this case, but uh, we do see here uh, that uh, he does have this question. Are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Now, again, that should cause us to just say, wait a second, this is, this is John. Like, how is it that John would have this question? And some people have tried to explain it away. Uh, and one of the ways I've seen it explained away is some people will say, well, really what John was trying to do was just to get his, his, his disciples to start following Jesus. And so their idea was maybe he was sending them to Jesus so that as they would ask this question of Jesus, they could make this conclusion, wait, if he's the expected one and my guy's in jail, maybe I'll follow the expected one. So that's one of the ideas that's out there, but I, I don't think that's clear enough for us to see that as being the case. I, I'm just going to take it at its word that this was a, a legitimate question of John, which might sound odd, but actually it's oddly comforting to me. It's oddly comforting that somebody like John the Baptist could have a moment of doubt, a moment where he questions his faith. Not that I want to encourage people to question and have doubt, but if you're anything like me, you've had moments of questioning and doubt. There's been moments where you've said to yourself, man, is this, this isn't quite working out the way I expected it to. I imagine as John the Baptist was proclaiming, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he didn't envision a prison sentence in that. He didn't envision spending time in jail as he was proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. I think he was thinking, here comes the Messiah, things are about to get good. And now he's in jail and preaching in the wilderness, guys, locked up in a cage. And suddenly, this kingdom of God thing isn't quite what I thought it was going to be. Now, you can just see how it would lead you to maybe asking the questions, just, just wanting to clarify or be reminded of some of these things. And certainly, it's okay for us to do those things. Uh, what I like about this, though, uh, is the way that Jesus responds to John. He simply responds with the word. He encourages them with the word. Uh, he reminds them here, and it seems in verses uh, uh, 5 in particular, but he reminds them uh, that he is a fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies by saying, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have, been preach, have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense to me. In other words, Jesus' response is pretty simple. He just reminds John of the prophecies of the expected one. He takes him to Isaiah chapter 35, to Isaiah chapter 61, and he allows him to be reminded that this is what the expected one was going to do, and this is what Jesus was doing. It's just a very simple reminder from the Scriptures. 
I would say this, if you find somebody that's struggling in their faith, who is a believer, and you might even think, man, this guy's been a solid believer, this gal's been a solid believer their whole life, how can I encourage them? Sometimes Scripture is just the thing. I'm not saying it's the only thing. There's certainly other things. I've found uh, at times some people just need some place to vent. I've had great success with having no good news like nothing good to offer into a circumstance. I just sit there and listen and just shake my head like, wow, that sounds terrible. I can't believe all that's happening. Oh man, that's horrible. And they rant and rant for 45 minutes, an hour, two hours sometimes. And at the end of it, they're like, thank you. I feel so much better. I'm like, I haven't done anything except for look with you with a freaked out face because I have no idea what to say to you, but I'm glad you feel better. It's that kind of being with one another. That's a great thing. It's giving the shoulder to cry on. Uh, But for me, sometimes I just need to be reminded of the truth of the scriptures. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's going to be encouraging John and even John's disciples to an extent here just by reminding him of these fulfilled prophecies. He's going to use that encouragement. Now, something interesting happens after that as well that I appreciate from Jesus. Uh, At this point, it seems as if those disciples are going away because in verse 7, it says, As these men were going away, so that's how we know they're going away, uh, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. And so we have now this next section here uh, where he's he's encouraging, but he's doing it in a different way. John's probably not going to hear any of this. John's disciples have left. But look what Jesus does. He then turns to the crowds and start speaking well of John. And I personally appreciate that because I think sometimes in the moment we try to comfort somebody who's struggling in our faith, and then later in the day we go and find somebody else and we're talking to them, like, you can't believe that so-and-so is struggling in their faith. I can't believe that. Can you believe that they're starting to, to have doubts? Instead, Jesus does the exact opposite. He turns to the crowds and he begins to build John up at John's lowest moment. John's never going to hear this, But everybody who knows of John is going to hear Jesus speaking well of John. Now, Jesus has a purpose that we'll see in this to draw the the, uh, conversation into another area, another topic of discussion. But in this moment, he begins building up John. Again, I just think that's a great strategy. When you run across somebody, don't talk ill of them after they leave. Uh, It's one of the things that I think has been helpful Uh, in our marriage. Sheila and I have done this consistently, that when we're with other people, we talk well of our spouses. It doesn't mean that I'm perfect if Sheila says nice things about me when I'm not around, but it keeps my image up in other people's eyes so I don't have the weight of my own sin plus the weight of everybody else thinking poorly of me. There's a value in that. It builds each other up, though. It does something great when we speak well of other people. 
builds them up from the outside in ways that we hadn't anticipated. And think of it this way now, John the Baptist, he might end up, well, we know he's going to be beheaded, but some of those people might go visit him in prison someday. And he's going to maybe be a little sheepish, like, yeah, there was that time that I doubted. And they're going to say, really? Because Jesus, man, he was just really building you up. Oh, yeah? Well, what did Jesus say about me? Well, he said this. What did you go out to see? A man shaken? No, that's not John. John's not a shaken man. He's not a guy who dresses up in soft clothing. He's a prophet. But man, he's, he's more than a prophet. He's the prophet from Malachi chapter 3. He quotes that in verse 10. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Could you imagine the encouragement that that could bring? And then he goes a step further and says this, Among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. It's like he goes the complete opposite. And on one hand, here's John. Are you the expected one? Maybe having some doubts, maybe having some concerns. Jesus goes to the opposite end and says, He's the greatest person ever born. Now imagine you're John in prison and somebody comes to visit you and says, you're not going to believe what Jesus said about you. And John's thinking, well, I might believe it because I have been a little doubtful lately. Maybe he doesn't have good things to say. Doesn't have good things to say? No, Jesus said, you're not just a prophet, you're the prophet. The one who's preparing the way for the Messiah. And he said, You're the greatest man ever born. And now you can start to see the faith built in John. That's that's pretty powerful. And I know I've made that mistake, by the way. I've made that mistake with people that I feel like have just had these amazing lives. Like they've lived these very consistent, gospel-filled lives. And then I start to see them stubble or struggle. And then because it's so out of their character, I'm appalled by, I can't believe they're doing that. I can't believe they're struggling. They've never been a struggler. What's wrong with them? I've gone the opposite route. Instead of remembering how great they have been, how consistent they've been, how faithful they've been, sometimes you just go the wrong way. And here's Jesus showing us a better path forward. But in this, he, of course, shows himself to be the fulfillment of prophecy, obviously by uh, the, these, the healing of the blind, the raising of the dead, the preaching the gospel to the poor, even in this quote from the book of Malachi as John's preparing the way for him. Uh, and then a step further, he's going to take it there uh, where he says this, that John himself is Elijah who was to come. He's going to repeat that in Matthew 17, but he's going to repeat it in a different fashion. Uh, I'm going to take you there just for context. I think it's important that we grasp this. Uh, it's it's a, a theory that I have. I think it's somewhat founded in Scripture. But anyway, here Jesus is talking. Uh, The disciples said to Jesus, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands." Now, here's how I take that. I take that to be pointing to John the Baptist. Now, you could be saying that's pointing to Elijah in the Old Testament, right? You could say, well, way back when Elijah was really here, they rejected him. You could certainly see it that way. But I'm saying it in this way. I think this points to John the Baptist. 
that I think there has been always this preparation that Jesus could have come in that moment in glorious fashion, like his plan had intended, but because of the rejection of the people, he didn't. He came in the suffering servant way. Now, obviously, Jesus saw all of this in advance, but he still laid the groundwork for the other way. So when John the Baptist came proclaiming the kingdom of God, if the people had received Jesus as king, if the religious leaders, if the nation of Israel had at that moment received him as their king instead of crucifying him, all of those prophecies would have still been fulfilled. And so Jesus here saying, if, if you would have accepted it, if you would have been willing, that's who John was. But because you didn't, we now go through this other path or pattern, which again, I think God had planned all this in advance. He knew how the people were going to respond, but he still left that there. He still left as John was there. He is Elijah, if you're willing to accept it. He says in verse 14 of Matthew 11, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Now there is this little interesting passage in here in verse 12. It says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Uh, you're going to see kind of a contrast here, I think, in verse 30, where Jesus talks about coming to him and receiving rest compared to this, this forceful battle. And this is where Jesus is going to begin to turn his attention from this one, this faithful person who's having a struggle to look at everybody else who's unwilling to enter the kingdom through the pathway that Jesus is preparing for them. Uh, and instead, they're trying to, uh, it seems, take the kingdom of God by force. And it seems to me anyway, at least to be a, a rebuke to uh, the, the religious leaders who basically thought to themselves, uh, for instance, the, the Pharisees, Jesus said, they've seated themselves in the seat of Moses. It's almost if he's saying uh, they've tried to, by rebellion, take the kingdom of God, by saying that they are the mediators between God and man, that they're the one that speak for God like Moses did. It's like they've tried to take the kingdom by force. So he's bringing this transition. But again, even in this, as he speaks about the unbelieving world, those who reject him, I find some comfort in understanding at least uh, the nature of this. I'm sure you guys have had these circumstances where you've tried to proclaim the gospel to people, you've tried to share the gospel with people, and they're just not hearing it. They're just not going to listen. They're just not going to receive, and it's frustrating in the moment, and, and if you're anything like me, you blame yourself for everything that ever goes wrong, right? And so you think to yourself, well, obviously I didn't pre preach the gospel well enough. I didn't quite do a good enough job with my apologetics to prove to them the gospel of the kingdom. But the reality is there's something in them, there's this, this attitude or something in them that prevents them from receiving the kingdom. Jesus says it this way, what shall I compare this generation to? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. The reality is, for some people, there's nothing you can do to convince them. And he gives this example as children. Uh, so let's say you have two this, this children, are, are, it says in the marketplace, but anyway, they're playing a flute and nobody wants to dance. So then they play a funeral song and nobody wants to mourn. 
What game are we playing? Are we having a celebration? Are we having a funeral? Which one is it? They don't want anything to do with either one of those. The example that Jesus compares that to, remember John, he came neither eating or drinking, and they said he was a demon-possessed man. And then Jesus comes, and he is eating and drinking, and they say he's a gluttonous man, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Basically, what they're saying is, it really doesn't matter how you bring the message to me. I don't want to hear it. And there's just people like that. There are just people that you're going to share the truth with, it, with them. And it doesn't mean, matter if you come to them like John the Baptist, who came fiery repentance, or Jesus, friend of sinners. It doesn't matter which way you come at it. They're just not going to hear it. And that was the reality that Jesus was working in. Again, sometimes we're like, yeah, I want to be just like Jesus. He went out and he preached the gospel and people got saved. Yeah, but he also went out and preached the gospel and people hated him. There's a connection there for us. There's an encouragement there for us, really, to recognize that at the end of the day, it's not on us to save souls. It's on us to proclaim the truth. And whether we come through that through fiery repentance or Jesus' friend of sinners, if the gospel is proclaimed, it's not our responsibility that they be saved. That's something that you work out theologically between God and through those folks. That's the reality of the circumstance. He goes even beyond that. It's not just that John came preaching repentance and Jesus came proclaiming good news. But we see this next group in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have been repeated, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Sometimes it wasn't even the way Jesus preached the gospel. Sometimes Jesus came in and did amazing, miraculous things. Healing the blind, raising the dead, all of these types of things, right? He's curing illnesses. And seeing those miraculous things, they got excited. They had a pep rally. It was all wonderful. Yet they still didn't repent. They still didn't believe. And he, he literally is going to name cities. He's going to give specific names of cities. Here's a city that's in trouble when the end comes. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. You guys are in big trouble. I did amazing things in your cities. And you still rejected me. Interesting names of cities there. I don't know much about Chorazin, but Bethsaida, that was the hometown of Philip and Andrew and Peter. Three of the 12 apostles came from that city. That city didn't repent at the things of Jesus, the miraculous works of Jesus. And then we see Capernaum. Capernaum was the home base for Jesus during his ministry. 
That's where he kept going to and then going out of. That was the main place where many of his ministry functions were completed. That was his sending place. They didn't repent at the teaching of Jesus. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And they still wouldn't receive Jesus. I know for me early on in my faith, well, maybe I should say it better this way. It wouldn't be early on in my faith. It would be early on in my ministry. Uh, There was a phase there uh, where I prayed pretty regularly, God, I really need to see something miraculous. I think that would really boost my my spirit, (laughs) really help me in my ministry if I could just really see something. I mean, I know there's some miraculous things, like occasionally somebody will be sick and I'll pray for them and they won't be sick anymore. But I mean, I want to see somebody's limb grow back. Like, that's the type of stuff I'm talking about. Like, I want to see somebody that can't stand up just suddenly stand up and start jumping for joy. I want to spit in somebody's eye and have them go from blind to able to see. Right now, when I spit in their eye, they go from able to see to not able to see. I want it the other way around, right? Like, I want to see blind people receive sight. That's what I'm talking about. Turn some water into wine. Whatever you got to do, that's what I want to see. That will build my faith. But the reality that we see over and over in Scripture is that isn't the key to building faith. That even when people see those miraculous things, it's exciting in the moment, but it doesn't put their faith any stronger in Jesus Christ, it seems. It seems there are still those who, even when they see the miraculous, it's just not going to be enough for them. They're just not going to believe. The only thing we're told in Scripture that actually builds faith the book of Romans, it says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Jesus Christ. That's it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Jesus Christ. I'm going to use a terrible example for you. <laughs> so get excited. Yay, terrible example on its way. But uh, I typically wouldn't turn to Kanye West and say, this guy's got something going on right here. But this week he was being interviewed <laughs> And he's being interviewed by an unbeliever, so the guy doesn't understand anything he's saying anyway because he's talking about Christian things. And he's Kanye, so nobody understands what he's saying anyway, right? But he's talking to him about his religion, and Kanye says, well, i got to tell you, the only thing that really works for me is expository preaching. And I'm like, wait, wait, what? (laughs) Who's this guy, right? (laughs) And he says, yeah, here's the deal. Like, there are some people, they stand up there, they grab their Bible, They hold it in their hands. They preach for two hours. They might have some anointing, but they never said anything. Because I'm in the entertainment industry. That's just sauce. I'm sick of sauce. I need meat. And so for me, I want a guy to open up his King James or his ESV and go line by line and tell me what the Word says. Are you kidding me? That's where our faith is built. It's right here in the Word. It seems to be we're always looking for the amazing, the supernatural, the wonderful. But when I look back over my life, the things that have built me the most has been the Word of God in my heart over and over and over again. And when I struggle the most, if I go back to the Word, I find peace. But you know what my tendency is when I struggle the most? I don't want to read that today really struggling today, God. I'm just not going to read that today. And then today becomes tomorrow and tomorrow becomes a week and a week becomes a month. You just kind of keep the cure at a distance. 
This is where our faith is built. It's in the Word. These people had John the Baptist and Jesus preaching to them. They didn't get saved. They saw the miracles of Jesus. It wasn't enough for them. But when John was doubting, how did Jesus encourage him? By repeating the Old Testament prophecies. So powerful and so encouraging for us. Jesus is going to change a little bit. He's been speaking to the crowds now. It seems as if he's going to pray and then have an altar call. It almost feels like a church service, right? He's going to pray and then have an altar call. In verse 25, it says, At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now there's interesting things happening here. Jesus now takes this next step, a, a theological step. He's going to connect one of the dots that's hard for us to see. Uh, but for me, that dot is this, that as much as the word is powerful, as much as preaching can be powerful, as much as uh, we have this, this real power that comes from watching the miraculous things, that at the end of the day, there's only those to whom it's revealed. And I don't understand the mystery of that. I don't understand even the theology of that. But there's this connection that there is this piece of it that God reveals himself to people. And it's in that revelation where the preaching of John makes sense, or the preaching of Jesus makes sense, where the miraculous work makes sense. There's a piece of this that comes from God's perspective that I think we forget. An uh, interesting place that we find ourselves we find ourselves as Christians uh, sometimes, and again, these are things I've said. I'm not saying this to make anybody else feel bad, but these are things I've said. Well, if I would have lived during the time of Jesus, this would have been much easier. If I would have seen Jesus doing those miracles, or if I would have been able to follow him around in all of these circumstances. But Jesus almost says the opposite. He says, blessed are you who did not see and yet still believe. There's something powerful in how that comes from God. There's a faith that was given to us. There's a connection there that I think is powerful and it's important. We don't want to separate ourselves from. Blessed are you. Uh, the same way he says it like this, to, much, to whom much was given, much was expected. Well, think about this. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, they saw much. There's a greater expectation of them. Jesus contrasts those, those groups, those cities, with Tyre and Sidon. In the book of Amos, Tyre and Sidon, man, those guys are told, you're going to be destroyed for how you treated the Edomites. I'm just going to destroy you. But Jesus says of those cities, I tell you what, though, if I had gone to Tyre and done the miraculous things I did in Bethsaida, Chorazon, and Capernaum, they would have repented. How powerful for those of us who didn't get to see all those things, and yet we believe. We're blessed by that. We've been, though, able to see some things through the Word that nobody else did. Jesus is also going to say, 
that the people of old longed to look into the things that we know. They longed to see the things. This is one of the things I like to remember about John the Baptist. John the Baptist saw Jesus, recognized him as the Messiah, heard the voice of God say, Behold my Son in whom I am well pleased. He saw those things. You know what John the Baptist didn't see? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He didn't get to see those things. We know things about Jesus that John didn't know. It's been revealed to us, but where was it revealed to us? In the Word. This is a faith builder for us. These times we gather together, we work our way verse by verse through the Word. It's God edifying and building us up in our faith and strengthening us, preparing us to accomplish His will and His work in this world. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. But why? So that the man or woman, the person of God, may be adequately equipped for every good work. This is the work that the Word is doing in our lives. Now, when we get to verse 28, and Jesus is kind of turned from praying first to the Father, thankful that the Father has revealed these things to some people who he describes as infants. I don't think that's a compliment. (laughs) He could contrast that to the wise and the intelligent. He revealed these things, not to the wise and to the intelligent, but to the infants. Wait a second. He revealed them to me. Okay. Ouch. But anyway, he then kind of moves on from that, and it seems as if he's addressing the crowd again, almost in an altar call sense. But he says this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I have battled with those verses over the years because my particular version of rest is different than what he's talking about here. When I hear, come to me those who are heavy and weary and I will give you rest, weary and heavy laden, not just those who are heavy, I'm heavy, (laughs) weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, what I would like it to be is smooth sailing from here. Never going to have a problem again. Life's going to be so easy now that you've called Jesus into your life. But that's not what he's proclaiming. That's not the rest he's talking about here. In fact, it should be obvious to us because other places he says, hey, if you believed me and they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Get used to it. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. That doesn't sound very restful to me. So it seems as if he's talking about a different type of rest, and it will be interesting as we go into chapter 12, he's going to immediately start speaking about the Sabbath, which was the rest. But as you get into Hebrews, what did I say, Matthew chapter 12, I'm sorry, as he continues on in Matthew 12, he goes from there and he begins to teach, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, And then in verse 8, he starts to talk about he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He starts to speak about what the Jews would have recognized as rest. But it seems the rest that he's describing is a rest from the religious practices that people thought that they had to be involved in somehow to earn salvation, to earn God's pleasure, to earn a relationship with God. You'll see it even more clearly in Hebrews chapter 4. If you'd like to 
uh, study that out more for yourself. I'll just read briefly a little bit of that to you. In Hebrews chapter 4, uh, really the whole book of Hebrews has this great uh, tone to it where it just basically just says, Jesus is better than, and it just lists out all the things that Jesus is better than. And here in chapter 4, therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains, entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works, and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, as after so long a time, just as been said before, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts." And the idea here is simply that we find rest by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. But the rest that it's talking about seems to be a rest from the works of the law, a rest from trying to save ourselves, a rest from the Old Testament covenant even. If you'll just put your faith in Him, this is where we find our rest. And I would say even beyond that, we would find it's talking about an eternal rest. It's more about the salvation to come than it is now. That connection there, this idea of rest. I like how he finishes it up here. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what a yoke is? It's not the center of an egg. Sometimes I tell bad yokes, right? But a yoke takes two beasts and it tethers them together so they can plow together. When we're yoked to Jesus Christ, that's where we find our rest. It's easy for him. So we can rest in that. And the burden is light for him. And we can rest in that. And I think it's a contrast to chapter 11, verse 12, where it says that there were men trying to take the kingdom by violence. Another way to translate that is they were trying to forcibly enter into the kingdom. They were trying to seize it for themselves. Jesus is saying, the kingdom is mine, and I'm inviting you in. Don't try to force yourself in. I'm inviting you in. Just come and receive rest. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word, and I do, I do pray for us. Lord, I'm not blind to the reality that some people have more difficult lives than others. Some people have worked harder at preaching and it's not had the same results that we have. 
Some have waited their whole life just in hopes of seeing the miraculous hand of you working for them. Lord, I pray today that for each of them that is maybe wearied by it all, or maybe even doubtful like this great man John, that today would be a day of rest for them. Father, as you said to these people, for those who are believers in Jesus Christ, for the least of those in the kingdom, even greater than John the Baptist, who was the greatest man ever born. Father, would you give us rest today? Would you give us hope and peace and encouragement that we can trust in you and in your word that you said if we believe that you would save our souls, that you forgive us our sins, that you cleanse us of all unrighteousness, restore us in right relationship to you and to your Father, that in you we can have eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.